The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, COVID cases rise and so do the hopes for a vaccine. Former Aetna CEO Mark Bertolini on supply and distribution. We've decided to allocate it out to the states, and I think that's wrong. And how he'd do it instead. As the vaccines come along, you need to have the ability to track and trace diagnostics, antibodies, and the vaccines because we don't know yet in any of these vaccines how long the immunity is. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton's exit interview. He's saying goodbye to his post, but he's keeping an eye on disruptions to the financial system, like SPACs and, of course, crypto. Our current payment mechanisms, domestically and internationally, have inefficiencies. Those inefficiencies are the things that are driving the rise of Bitcoin. Plus, the lawyer who counseled Al Gore in the 2000 Florida recount, David Boies, on 2020. There is no way that Trump can overturn these election results. There's no political way. There's no legal way. There's no, not going to be any military coup. It's Thursday, November 19th, 2020. 2020, make it stop. Feels like March still. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Cronin and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Welcome back. Andrew, it's good to see you. It's nice to see you. You know what? In this 2020, it doesn't feel that I was ever, at least for me, that far away because I'm sitting in the same seat (laughs) all over again. The seesaw of good and bad news on COVID. We're going to uh, seesaw you back and give you a little bit of actually good news that did happen overnight uh, in the vaccine wars, the coronavirus vaccine being developed by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca, found to be safe. And uh, the good news is it triggers an immune response among all adults. That's according to preliminary findings of a peer-reviewed phase two trial. Phase three trials are already underway. Uh, That news coming a day after the U.S. reached a total, though. This is the other part of the seesaw of 250,000 COVID-19 deaths. And um, trying to make sense of that. uh, It's funny, guys. I, I don't want to say it's funny, but typically when we've had great news about the vaccine, the markets have moved, but the question is whether all of that's now built into the built in, all the good new, good possible news is already built in. I don't know. Well, question you ask a lot, news, isn't it? A good. Uh, we got close to thirty thousand, so uh, we'll see. We'll see what we can hold. I mean, I we did the Pfizer news yesterday, and you know, in in thinking about it, it's like oh, we got to go through the advisory panel, and they got to schedule that, and then they got to vote on that, and then the full FDA's got to come. But you read the journal and it's like they're doing this within days. I mean, so that it might be available in an expedited manner, you know, by the end of this year, which for frontline workers and, and, you know, whoever there's enough supply for right at the very beginning, that's that's near term. That's near term. And I think there has been a a shift a little bit just in the last couple of weeks about and there was an election uh, about, you know, whether it's being rushed, whether you'd feel safe, whether they whether there's political pressure, whether this is a good vaccine. And, and I don't know, Becky, and I, yesterday, Andrew, we were saying, uh, I don't know, a lot of people were tweeting, they're ready to, to take the Pfizer vaccine on the 737 max. 
So they're ready to, you know, a lot of people, we, we were looking at both those stories and both of those things we're feeling better about. And, and obviously, the 737 MAX is going to be a lot of flights before all of us and, and the whole country feels right. like, yeah, I'm putting my family on there. But you get a couple of thousand flights under your belt or six months or a year. And I think it's similar with, you know, we, we don't trust regulators, the FAA. We don't know if they're in bed with Boeing. We worry about all these things, the pressure about the, the vaccine. But hopefully it's right. all going to be done in a, in a good manner and there's going to be a really good outcome. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm really hopeful that by the I'll summer the, that we're all happy again. I, You'll I, be I here. Be too. Well, but I want to, I want to tell you one, the one thing that struck me uh, during all these conversations I had during this deal book thing in the past two days uh, was this comment that Dr. Fauci made about a, requiring really an uptake of 75% of the country to have taken the, the vaccine before you would stop masking and social distancing. You're not gonna have a vaccine completely replace public health measures. There will always be an element of need to adhere to public health measures. The degree of stringency of it is gonna depend upon the level of infection in the community. Meaning that even those who are, who are vaccinated from a, from, a, from a public health perspective because it will still circulate until you get to that 75% threshold or higher, which I thought was actually a higher threshold than I had even thought, because we've talked about different levels for herd immunity with, with Dr. Gottlieb and others. And if, that's, if that is the threshold, given some of the numbers you, you see, one, three people saying that, that they won't be taking the vaccine, sometimes it's even more than that, it becomes much more complicated. Um, and you hear and when we, therefore we we'll, extend out the We'll probably be at 30% on. already, though. You heard that number that we did. We, we've been 15% infected. I've heard 15. that. So that you get the, that. Yeah. And then I think that consumer behavior, you're not going to have to mandate mask or, or social distancing. That's going to be hard to overcome just in general in, in, in some next places. year. Probably, I'm still going to feel here. weird. I'm still going to feel weird. It's, not every I'm not place in the country has learned the same lesson that we have. Right. Me drinking alone at home. I'm still not going to be sidling yeah. up to a bar uh, anytime soon, well, I don't think. So. Some of us have gotten used to that. People wear like it. I think over in, in, in other parts of the world, people wear masks long after they didn't need them. There are a lot of people just walking around yeah. in masks. So that may yeah. be, they're not, that, they're not that bad. You know, you get a nice one. At least it's a path towards getting getting yeah. towards, you know, some sort of normal life. And I'd, I'd give anything to be back where we were over the summer, even at that point when I was kind of panicked about things. I, you look back and we had it really good then. It was much safer than it is right now with the cases coming back. The concern now kind of turns to what's happening with the shutdowns to take care of yep. this and New York City becoming just the Bad. latest in this, shutting down in-person ed education starting right. today. It's a huge issue. It's something people that stuck people at are home watching very closely. Kids. Yeah, people, right. you know, right. not, not, going, not able to go to work if well, you don't have not being able care. to get to work. And these are the huge questions that we are faced with once again. How do you do this? How do you control the virus, try to contain it until we get to those um, vaccinations that we've been talking about? How do you control it and contain it without doing incredible economic damage? And, and guys, this is where, once again, it's time for, for Congress to step up. And, and deal with the responsibilities they should be dealing with. This is like abdication of duty at this point. Right now is when the nation needs a bridge to get through to the time when these vaccinations are readily available. Right now is when you need to be helping small businesses, you need to be helping the schools, you need to be helping Americans who have been unemployed. And right now you're getting crickets from them. Right. I don't know. Is anything going on? I don't know what's going on. There's just a lot of 
you know, a lot of arguing about votes and transitions yeah. and everything else. I will and say looking towards Georgia. People, you know, in terms of school, my kids used to like a snow day. That would be the greatest thing in the world. They are so tired of this at this point. They, I, it's weird to see the, the change in, in attitude, how much they want to go back to school. You know, and it, remember, and I remember how I used to pray for, for that. And, and when it, the weatherman would be wrong and it'd be a couple of flakes and it's like, I, I wanted to go find him. It's like, you said, you know, we we're going to have a snow day and you did. But now you'd give anything to never have another snow day. So it's, it's very tough. That might be, I don't know. Take your pick on, on who's affected the most. There's so many uh, negative things about this. The school shut down, then people can't go to work, and then did you see the food lines in, in, in a wealthy state of uh, yep. Dallas? In I mean, Texas. It, miles and miles and Hours miles, long. miles. Just waiting. For, think about waiting think about that. What that line's so going to look like a month from now, or two months from now, or right. three months from now, given yeah. a lot of the jobs that Make are going to be lost. Make it stop. 2020, make it stop. When's, uh, what is it, November? Have we got that right? They're all, feels like March still. Yeah. yeah. The coronavirus vaccine that's being developed by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca was found to be safe and that it triggers an immune response among all adults. That's according to preliminary findings of a peer-reviewed phase two trial. Phase three trials are already underway. That news comes just a day after the United States reached a total of 250,000 COVID-19 deaths. Joining us right now is Mark Bertolini. He's former Aetna chairman and CEO. And Mark, it's great to see you. It's been a while since we've talked to you, but uh, obviously uh, the, the events that we've seen now, you have an understanding of how things play out. Developing those vaccines has been the really hard work, but the next step isn't going to be all that e easy either. We need to figure out how to safely and effectively distribute the vaccine to millions of Americans. And I know um, CVS is going to be playing a role with that. Aetna is going to be playing a role with that. Where, where do you think we stand? What are the, the challenges that we face? And how do you think this will play out? Great to see you, Becky, Joe, Rod, Andrew. Um, I think the real issue here is um, the vaccine's great. More The more the merrier. Um, I think we need more innovation. Um, and it's been amazing what the pharmaceutical companies have been able to do. But it's one part of an arsenal that really goes back to a broader pandemic framework where we first have to early identify, so get back into who the World Health Organization, get, get active there again. Secondly, have the diagnostic and antibody testing to stratify the population so we know who's immune. And we also know who we need to protect. So that way we can keep America working while we protect Americans that are at risk. And then as the vaccines come along, you need to have the ability to track and trace diagnostics, antibodies, and the vaccines, because we don't know yet in any of these vaccines how long the immunity is. And when that immunity wears off, you need to understand when it happens, what kind of booster shot do people need, um, and how do we keep that going over time. So the amount, the enormity of the data and the framework around doing that um, is going to be really important to build. And we don't have that yet, in large part because we don't have a national plan. There, there's a lot of things that we can kind of jump into there. But I, I want to start with one thing you said, that we need to figure out who is going to be most affected by this. I mean, I think that's part of the huge question. We know the demographic split, that older people happen to be um, in worse shape with this, that people with comorbidities have a worse time with this. 
But are we any closer to being able to figure out why some people are so greatly impacted, even if they don't have comorbidities, even if they're younger, while others seem to deal just fine with it? I think we're learning more every day, Becky, um, I'm, I, and we'll continue to learn. It's going to take a while to get a real deep understanding of this disease and of the vaccine's impact. Um, but I think it's important that as, as long as we have a national framework around this, we can begin to approach all the public health issues. But even more importantly, we can build the capacity models we need to understand in PPE, hospital beds, skill sets, and in uh, ventilators and other things that allow us to have a buffer economy so we're not doing just-in-time responses to pandemics as they emerge. This is not our last pandemic. We'll have more. Mark, we're pretty long in the tooth in this pandemic, at least it sure feels like it if you're sitting at home. Well, why do you think we don't have a, a, a better plan at this point, at least for the testing uh, and, and at least for contact tracing? Because we don't have a framework to do it nationally across the board. We could be learning so much from every part of the country if we had a way of aggregating the information we're understanding and who's sick, why they're sick, um, what kind of antibodies are we seeing out there, what can be used for therapeutics. And as the vaccines develop, how are these vaccines working? Which ones are best for which population? That requires a national database, a national way of looking at this information. And we've decided to allocate it out to the states, and I think that's wrongheaded. Hey, Mark, can you comment on uh, what's going on with this Amazon news this week and what you think the implication is for CVS, now parent company uh, of Aetna? The stock actually fell. So it, it clear, clearly there's a view that CVS Health has not done enough uh, to be able to compete if you will, on the digital side. How confident are you in, in, in their ability to do that? Uh, the CEO of CVS Health, of course, coming from the insurance side now. So how do you think about that? Well, um, at first, nobody should be surprised uh, that Amazon's made this move. I think the timing is probably not, um, has been well-planned um, for this very reason. To get our economy going again, customers, consumers must feel safe going back into the economy. And so it's, it's, it's re the responsibility of leadership and all these organizations, including the board, to better understand what is the value proposition and customer experience that allows people to be safe to use your product and services. Once you understand that, you have to then recalibrate asset allocation and capital allocation and people in a way that allows employees to come back to work in meeting that value proposition safely. When you have both conditions where people know it is safe, then I think you can reopen the economy more, more robustly. And I think that's the issue we're seeing with retail pharmacies across the board. They still want people in the stores to buy other stuff. And what you're seeing in companies like Target, which you know, who would have ever thought on a quarterly call, you'd see them talking about adding curb spaces to deliver more product or look at Gap reducing the number of stores and saying digital first, and their stock goes up. The whole issue here is, are we reshaping our businesses in a way that makes customers feel safe engaging with us and allows our employees to engage with our customers safely? And that hasn't been cracked yet in retail pharmacy. Mark, thanks for joining us this morning. Like I said, it's been a while. We'd love to have you back soon. But thanks good for to your see time. You. It's I'm, good to see you. I'm back in the game, so good to see you all. Next, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton in his CNBC exit interview. The chairman of three years weighs in on Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and the SPAC frenzy. There's more forward-looking information in the SPAC space. Well, maybe one thing we can learn from this is that there should be more forward-looking information in the IPO space. 
Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton announced earlier this week he will step down at the end of 2020, ahead of his term, ending in June. During Clayton's three and a half years leading the key regulator of Wall Street, the SEC brought close to 3,000 enforcement actions and took in more than $14 billion in financial remedies. One key target was Elon Musk. The Tesla CEO was sued by the SEC in 2018 following his whole funding secured tweet storm about taking the electric vehicle maker private. Musk paid a $20 million fine. Clayton also focused on Main Street investors. His SEC prevented car rental agency Hertz from selling stock while in bankruptcy protection, and he expressed skepticism of the SPAC boom, the blank check companies taking a fast route to the public markets with more limited disclosure to investors. In his first interview since announcing his departure, the SEC chairman spoke to Andrew Ross Sorkin today on Squawk Box. Here's Andrew. Chairman, it's great to see you. Thank you so very, very much for joining us. Well, I think we could describe this uh, perhaps as the exit interview. I want to talk about your tenure in just a moment, uh, but I do want to get to a piece of news that the Wall Street Journal reported on earlier this week, uh, which is uh, your view of uh, this 10B5 program, insider trading uh, uh, among uh, executives, and your push uh, uh, potentially against that, given what we've seen now uh, with some of these pharmaceutical drug sales, including the CEO of Pfizer. Um, I, I know you're not going to be able to enact any meaningful changes in this last month, but what, what do you think should happen? Well, Andrew, it's, it, it's, it's a great question. And uh, look, 10B51 programs are part of an, an overall approach we have to aligning interests of executives uh, with their shareholders. You want to compensate executives with stock, but at some point they need to be able to um, sell that stock for, for the, all the personal needs we have. And how do you do it in a way that you give confidence to the marketplace, um, that you're following good corporate hygiene, as I say, and good governance? One of those is a 10B51 plan where you put it in place when you don't have an information asymmetry relative to the rest of the market, and then sales occur over time. I believe that a gap between the time you put it in place or a time that you materially amend it and the time of the first sale gives people greater confidence that you haven't tried to time the market. And I think it's something that we, we should, all companies should consider it, and I think it's something that we should um, consider, I would say, codifying into our, our rules around 10B51 plans. And for that to happen, would that be the next chairman of the SEC who would have to enact that, or is that something that would require legislation? Well, you could do it either way. Um, uh, the next chair of the SEC could do so. Uh, I'm trying not to, to bind uh, my, my successor in, in any way, but uh, I think this is an area where there's, there's broad support. I don't see any harm um, in having to wait, uh, particularly if you're in for the long term alongside your fellow shareholders, and I, and I think it would um, improve confidence in that, in that sort of alignment of interest, but eventually having uh, liquidity uh, dynamic that is present in, in almost all public companies today. Um. 
Chairman, uh, let, me, let me mention to you that uh, when you announced that you were stepping down on, on Monday, I got an email from a CEO who said that, you, that your, your tenure has been vastly underappreciated. You've been relatively quiet. You've come on Squawk Box a handful of times, but said Jay Clayton could go down as actually the most effective SEC chair in history. What he's done to level the playing field and create opportunities to bridge the wealth gap are incredible. And I know it's immensely technical, but the SEC's recent harmonization rules streamlining capital raising for small businesses is a game changer. My question to you is when, when, when you hope that people look back on your tenure, what, what do you want them to uh, perhaps appreciate or, or what you think may be underappreciated? We're showing uh, some numbers for enforcement actions. I know some of the criticism has been that you, that you haven't been as forceful uh, on that, but the numbers reflect otherwise. Well, it, it's really about Main Street investor participation. Um, look, let me compliment you guys. Frank Luntz was on the other day complimenting you guys on how, how you bring uh, these issues of our interconnected economy um, uh, you know, out in a very clear way. Um, our Main Street investors need to be interconnected with our economy. And how can they do that in the most efficient way and get a deal where they're sitting side by side with the professional investors. Uh, that's, that's been my perspective. That's the perspective of the women and men here at the SEC. How do we keep making it better for them? And uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Andrew, is our private markets. Um, for most small and medium-sized businesses, our public markets are not an option. Uh, they need to fund themselves in our private markets. Um, to do so, you need to find investors. But investors also want to find those opportunities. One of the things we've tried to do is make sure that our Main Street investors can sit side by side with professional investors in those opportunities, and also that small and medium-sized businesses do not need the array right. of lawyers and other professionals that public companies need in order to access capital. Uh, that's been a driving force here, you know, all with investor protection in mind. Jay, what do you think, though? Historically, some of some of the people who've been in your role have had a, a much more antagonistic. Uh, at least pu publicly antagonistic approach towards business. Um, you, have, you actually have had, and the enforcement numbers are clear. You can look at the data, uh, but, but you've taken at, at least um, rhetorically a different approach. And I'm curious how you think that the next chairman should approach this. Uh, look, I, maybe it's my, my personality, uh, whatever it is. Um, I, I believe in investors. I also believe in investing. Um, you have to have good companies to invest in, and we, we have um, tremendous companies in, in this country. 62 of the world's 100 largest public companies are, are here in the United States. Incredible engines for growth. We've seen them respond to right. the pandemic um, in an incredibly transparent way. That said, if somebody does something wrong, we're going to whack them. Um, but we don't need to uh, paint with a broad brush. Uh, we need to paint with a, with a scalpel. Um, if you have a bad executive, they should be out of the business. It's a privilege to be a public company executive. But by and large, um, the way our, this recent period has demonstrated that our public companies, public-private partnership, it is an incredible strength of America. I uh, wanted to ask you a couple of other uh, topics. One is cryptocurrency, which has been on your watch. Um, you haven't necessarily approved it. Uh, for, for, for any real market-making uh, uh, opportunities. And I think there were a lot of people hoping that you would. 
I want to show you a tape. I I talked to uh, Jamie Dimon yesterday. Uh, Obviously, J.P. Morgan's got him behind crypto. I think there were a lot of people who thought that he might also be uh, a supporter of Bitcoin. And he said that he wasn't because of this. Let me play it for you. My experience with the government is they can regulate whatever they want when they feel like it. And, you know, Bitcoin is worth $200 billion, something like that. If it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it will be regulated. Well, let's put it this way, Andrew. We did not regulate Bitcoin as a security. Um, When people use crypto assets as securities to raise capital for a venture, the SEC regulates that. And what was happening in the ICO craze was people were using ICOs and, and essentially making public offerings of securities without registering with them with the SEC. Uh, we determined that Bitcoin was not a security. It was much more um, a payment mechanism um, and store of value. But the government does, the government does regulate payments. And what, what we are seeing is that our current payment mechanisms, domestically and internationally, have inefficiencies. Those inefficiencies are the things that are driving uh, the rise of Bitcoin and other stable, I, I, will, I won't say stable in the case of Bitcoin, but, but driving these types of digital assets. And we're going to see more of that. And we're going to see, I think we're going to see this mature and we're going to see more regulation around the payment space. Jay, also, we keep talking about SPACs. That's been something else that's taken place and become a frenzy on your watch. I think we only will realize or appreciate the performance or underperformance of these types of approaches in the years to come, uh, do you think that your uh, your successor should regulate the disclosures in any different way, given the various incentives of the players that that are not, if we're being fair about it, completely aligned? Well, you and I have spoken about this, and I've I've tried to make it clear to our investing public that that the incentives around a a de-spacking transaction, the acquisition transaction, are different from the incentives in your typical uh, IPO, and the process is different. Uh, you do not have the same roadshow and institutional investor uh, kicking the tires that you have in your typical IPO. We, we're looking at that and looking at um, uh, whether disclosure should be, uh, we should issue guidance or, uh, or otherwise try and um, help companies craft the disclosure. I'm seeing better disclosure, Andrew, seeing more clear disclosure about the motivations of the sponsors and the like. Um, in the SPAC space. There's more forward-looking information in the SPAC space. Well, maybe one thing we can learn from this is that there should be more forward-looking information um, in the IPO space. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, Jay, we very much appreciate uh, you being with us, uh, and we look forward uh, to having you uh, on many more times uh, in your new role, uh, whatever that may very well be in the future. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Bush v. Gore 2000 election lawyer, David Boyce. Don't leave, Sorkin. I want to ask you a question. You remember, I mean, this guy might know a little bit about this, right? Do you remember what David Boyce... He knows Boyce, a lot about it. This is it. Do you, do you remember... one person to talk to, this is the man. Do you remember what fashion statement he was 20 or 15 years ahead on back in the year 2000? Do you remember? Were you watching that closely? White sne- sneakers and a suit. Oh, sneakers and a suit. Sneakers Remember and a suit. Remember that? Dave, all the way back. I was going to say Gap khakis maybe before Steve Kornacki, but, you know, sneakers <laughs> yeah. and a suit as well. This should be interesting, though. That Wow. 20 years. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. 
Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. J.P. Morgan telling clients there is still a chance the election process turns into chaos. In a note that they sent yesterday, uh, their strategist there, Michael Semblist, uh, warning of a, quote, what he's calling remote risk of an American horror story and constitutional mayhem. Uh, want to uh, welcome this morning high-profile attorney David Boyes, chairman of the law firm Boyes, Schiller & Flexner, who recently co-authored along with Ted Olson a Washington Post op-ed. It was titled, We Opposed Each Other in Bush v. Gore. Now We Agree. Biden Won. We want to thank you uh, for joining us, David, this morning. And, and just speak to uh, the concerns you have about where we are in this transition process and what you think needs to happen. I, I think there are two concerns, um, neither of which are really legal concerns. Uh, from a legal standpoint, this election is over. Um, there isn't anything that's going to be done to turn it around. Um, the two concerns are, as this controversy, or supposed controversy, plays out, it is interfering with the Biden administration's ability to get ready to go through the transition process and really be prepared to govern. Um, and that's a disadvantage to everybody in this country, Republican, Democrat alike. It doesn't make any difference who you voted for in the election. You want the new administration to be ready on day one to protect American interests, both at home and abroad. And the ongoing dispute, in quotes, uh, is interfering with that. Um, second, I think it's dividing the country. Um, when you make baseless claims about widespread voter fraud and the like, you stir up this sense of people who really don't know the facts, haven't had the time to investigate it themselves, uh, that somehow something went wrong in this election. As both Republican and Democratic secretaries of state around the country have said, this was the most secure election in history. Uh, this was the election that had the greatest scrutiny, uh, the most protections um, of any presidential election in history. Um, and to try to undermine people's faith in democracy, I think, is unfortunate. Let me, though, ask you as a lawyer, um, in terms of your duty as a lawyer, you have represented people uh, that I imagine you have disagreed with their position. Right. You have represented right. people that I imagine may have very well been guilty. And you would mm -hmm. have argued that they deserve to participate in the legal process. And there are supporters of President Trump to mm -hmm. this day who believe that at minimum, he should be allowed to go through the legal process. What do you say uh, to absolutely. that? And, 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 well, I mean, uh, I agree with that 100 um, uh, percent. I totally disagree with the idea that you go out and try to uh, punish, try to demonize 
uh, lawyers uh, for representing a client in court. Uh, we want these disputes in court. Uh, if they bring them to court, they're going to get dismissed. They're getting dismissed all the time. Um, we don't want it in the streets. We don't want this decided in social media. Uh, we want them decided in court. And I think it's a, I think it's a terrible mistake uh, for people uh, to demonize lawyers for taking on a client they don't like. Um, uh, however, um, lawyers do have a responsibility to make sure that the claims they make in court are responsible ones. And the courts will decide um, and will sanction lawyers um, who don't bring uh, responsible arguments. But that, should, that ought to be decided, as I say, in court, not in social media, uh, not in the political realm. The thing that I think is, is unfortunate is the president continuing to use the enormous pulpit of the White House uh, and as president of the United States to attack the election system. If he has issues, bring them to court, let the court decide them. Um, it is, the, it is the making of these political assertions that I think just are without basis that I think is unfortunate. Can, can you just take us back to 2000 for a second and, and speak to the issue of how uh, both sides worked with each other during this transition period at the same time that this legal battle was ongoing? Sure. If you remember, um, even when we were intensely fighting, um, uh, both then Governor Bush and Vice President Gore each uh, worked on their own transitions. Each had access to information. Each was pre being prepared to take over if they happened to be the person who won. Um, and uh, th that's the way it's been traditionally. Um, there's been a handoff, even when there's been a bitter, bitter election campaign. Um, the loser has always conceded and the winner has always been gracious to the loser in terms of helping with the transition. Um, uh, we have a situation here in which people are not cooperating in the way that we always have in this country. And this country is built on cooperation. Our political system is built on cooperation and good faith. And when that breaks down, it breaks down to the detriment of the American people. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see that J.P. Morgan report that uh, I mentioned at the introduction of this. I'm just curious what you think of it. Uh, the author of it says, bottom line, a lot of very unorthodox things have to happen for Trump to be reelected. Re uh, even so, I'm not ruling anything out. What well, do you see as a I think we know what the best case scenario is for, if this were to end uh, and there'd be a peaceful transition. But do you see a situation that uh, is a worst case scenario where there is not a peaceful transition? There is no worst case scenario. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you've got, always got to be careful about saying always and never. Um, uh, but this is as close to a never situation as you can possibly get in, in life. Um, there is no way um, that uh, Trump can overturn these election results. Uh, there's no political way. There's no legal way. Um, there's no, not going to be any military coup. Um, there isn't any way that this election can be overturned. Uh, you, you can speculate um, a lot, but even the speculations eventually end with the same result, which is President Biden being elected on January 20th. Um, there simply is not a path, not a legal path, not a political path, um, as I say, and, and certainly not a military coup path um, for uh, President Trump to remain in office. David, if, if, if the Trump team had hired you, I, I, I'm just not sure you'd be talking this way. I, I really not. And, and I remember, well, I didn't think there was, you spent 37 days in Democratic counties 
harvesting chads as you slowly built up Democrat votes in Florida to try and overturn that election because you were being paid to do it back then for, for, for that side. I, I, and and well, you already made the point. You already made the point that you can't vilify any, a lawyer for anyone they represent. You're, you, if you were on the Trump team, you'd be probably be talking about, oh, my God, this, that and, every, and all the other. I know how, how that works. Am I wrong? No. Yeah, I, I think you are wrong because, I mean, for example, take, take 2000, okay? Um, in 2000, there were lots of uh, claims, for example, that Vice President Gore could have made. Um, you'll remember that there were issues with respect to the uh, ballots in Seminole County, a Republican uh, county, absentee ballots that could have been challenged. There were a variety of challenges that could have been made to military ballots. Um, uh, uh, in each, each of those cases, um, uh, those cases, those might have been enough to change the election all by themselves. Um, Vice President Gore uh, didn't make those uh, challenges, um, didn't believe that those were responsible charges to make. Um, I think one of the things that characterized the 2000 election is that I think both sides uh, made arguments that they thought were responsible arguments. Um, now, if a, law, if a lawyer makes an irresponsible argument, um, I don't think it's up to the right. social media right. to demonize them. It's up to the David. courts to deal with that. Was that the first uh, the first time someone wore sneakers with a suit? Do you know? I mean, do, do you take credit for? I mean, it's a total societal change that that I, I right. think you you spearheaded. Did you did you have a like Bunions or something? What what are you just said? No, uh, uh, I'm wearing these sneakers. What what was that? Well, How did you, that happen? If you uh, if you go back to uh, uh, Michael Lewis's slate columns uh, uh, that opened the Microsoft trial. Uh, he, he talks about my uh, suit and sneakers going to court. Um, I, I've worn, uh, I, I've worn uh, sneakers, uh, typically black sneakers, but sneakers um, uh, in court for a long time. They're simply more comfortable. And when you're on your feet, you're looking I, for comfort. I hear you. I hear you. But, uh, hey, you're a trendsetter. You got, you know, awesome. <laughs> anyway, Andrew. Okay. Uh, David Boys, uh, thank you so very much. Uh, come on back. Uh, there's so much to talk to you about. Absolutely. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again, hopefully in person very, very soon. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern for conversations with the most important business leaders and other advice. George Thurgood, when I drink alone, I prefer to be by myself. I like the heart. I've been drinking some seltzer. I like the black cherry. Becky, I, you, 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 sometimes I drink, you like the white wine, right? With your finger up? Yeah, I like the white wine. I have not tried the white claw, but George Thorogood, when he drinks by himself, I think he drinks with Johnny Walker. That's a good one. He's not always by himself. Uh, and maybe Jim yeah, B. I forget, there's three others, a few others, Gentleman Jack, a couple others he drinks with. Subscribe to Squawk Pod, available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts and share Squawk Pod with a friend. You can do it at a social distance. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.